I'm just going to read, I think, you know, I'm going to read like the first full page almost in a quarter. If there's something that you want me to stop by, stop me. But I think the beginning is just uh, a little bit of history. So let's move. And if you want to stop me, stop me. 1951, 770 Eastern Parkway, Brooklyn, New York. On the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat, a small group of Hasidim huddled together in the middle of a winter, in the middle of winter, anxiously waiting to hear the first words from their new Rebbe. So we know Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, after his father-in-law passed away, there was no Rebbe for a while, and a lot of the Hasidim wanted him to be the Rebbe, and he pushed it off for a long time. Eventually, for reasons not fully clear, he finally decided to take the, the mantle, take the leadership. And everybody was waiting to hear what this Rebbe had to say. They knew already, they knew he was a Tamachacham, they knew he was a Goin. <clears throat> they didn't know how much, though. This humble gathering represented the meager remnant of, of the once glorious Hasidic dynasty known as Chabad Lubavitch, which in the past had numbered in the hundreds of thousands with centers and outposts active across mo- much of Eastern Europe. Many of those present had lost much of their families to Stalinist purges or during the war, while others had ventured across the Atlantic earlier and had begun to assimilate into the surrounding American culture to varying degrees. And yet here they were waiting and wondering what would become of them and their life and their way of life in this new land. What would be their marching orders into the future? It had been exactly one year since the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, had passed away, creating a leadership vacuum in this tight-knit community of pious scholars and mystics, simple Jews and survivors. During the interim period, the future of the movement had been uncertain as the new Rebbe had consistently rejected all invitations to assume the position. Numerous debates and deliberations ensued. Who would lead them? Where would they turn for comfort, strength, and guidance in life and Torah? With these questions up in the air, coupled with the traumas of life under Soviet regime and aftershocks of the war, it is easy to imagine this small group of largely Yiddish-speaking immigrants feeling profoundly distraught and disoriented. Within this relative chaos, the Rebbe revealed a hidden order, picking up precisely where his father-in-law, the sixth Rebbe, had left off. The new Rebbe began his inaugural address with the well-known words from from Shir Hashirim, Balsi Lagani, I've come into my garden. He was taking over the leadership, I've come into my garden. These are the very same opening words quoted by Rav Yosef Yitzchak, right, the Rebbe's father-in-law, the, the previous Rebbe, in his final discourse, amounting to a last will and testament of sorts for his followers, published exactly one year earlier to the day. This subtle act of spiritual connection, threading the proverbial needle from one Rebbe to the next, was so important to the Rebbe that for the next four decades, the Rebbe would continue to review and reveal deeper and higher aspects of Rav Yosef Yitzchak's final teaching every year at the annual Hasidic gathering marking the anniversary, the yard site, of his father-in-law and predecessor's passing. Ultimately, this is where we really get into it now. Ultimately, both Rebbe's interpreted the verse of Basi Lagani in a profoundly creative and inspiring way. Say, this is the beginning and this is the whole point of the chapter. Despite all the eruptive uncertainty and destructive chaos punctuating the recent past and still defining the times in many ways. So in our time also, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of destruction going on in the world. Could be in the Jewish community, could be in our own lives. But nevertheless, he says, the world is not a cruel 
and meaningless mass hurtling blindly through space. The world is God's garden. The world is Hashem's garden, His finest creation and chosen abode. A lot going on in the world, but we have, the, the perspective is that this is Hashem's garden. It's something to think about. We don't usually think of the world as Hashem's garden. We think of it as a big world, and it's God's world, and it's huge, and there's so many things going on. There's good, there's bad, there's a lot of stuff. But we need to start seeing it as Hashem's garden, a beautiful garden with a lot of flowers. Sometimes there's weeds, but it's a big garden. Realizing and living this truth largely depends on how one views and understands the world around and within them. When you look out at the world and into your soul, do you see a wasteland or a wonderland, a desert or an oasis? To check within ourselves, how do I view the world? We never really think about that. We just view the world. We just live life. We just go about our day with automatic impressions within our mind, automatic thought processes. But we do we ever think about how we think? This is something that we need to start getting if we're going to try to get into our bias, try to get into the deeper recesses of our mind and try to change the way we think and change the way we view and perceive the world, we need to start thinking about our perceptions. Okay, Zach, let's go. Actually, Chaim, you go, because who knows when you need to get pulled out of here. Okay. Zach, you're, Zach, you're next. Just wait. <laughs> a desert or an oasis. Okay. According to Hasidus, we each have the power to define and influence our experience based on our perception. Just what's it called? What's Knowing that called? That, what's that called in Hasidus? Which, which sphere? Very important. Das. Das is the way of perception. That's Das. It's not Chachma, it's not Bina, it's Das. Das is the way that we integrate our thinking processes with the way we actually create, connect the world. The integration is Das. Okay, it's very important. That's where I'm going to use that word a lot. Yeah. Knowing this with every fiber of his being, the Rebbe rigorously developed and consistently expressed what I will call a profound and programmatic positivity bias to life, to the Torah, and to people, leading him to seek and find the pure and positive essence within everyone and everything. This is our goal. This is the Iker Bikush, to seek the, positive, the pure and positive essence within everyone and everything at every time. Always seeing the temple beneath the ruins, actively seeking the positive aspect or opportunity in any given situation, believing deeply in God's ultimate goodness and imminent presence, living with purpose, responsibility, and meaning. These qualities provide the psycho-spiritual foundation of the Rebbe's radical theory and redemptive practice of life. I love that, that word, redemptive. Because Probably. when we don't think in a way of positivity, we're literally in gullus. We're in a self-made exile because... When God looks at the world, what does he see? He sees a lot of bad stuff going on, but God, he's the one who's creating it. He knows ultimately it's for the best. There is a good, there is a purpose, there is a reason for everything that's going on. Right? That's how he sees the world. So therefore, if we don't see the world in a good way, meaning, let's get back. The Bonisham created the world. He's God. He could do everything. He could do 
He could destroy the world and he could keep the world going. He doesn't need us, but yet he keeps us around. So if you believe, then you also must believe that everything that happens in this world is for the best. Otherwise, w- w- there's a God who's angry. What does that mean? What does that mean he doesn't need us? What does that mean he doesn't need us? Well, there was a time he before. Need us. There was a time before there but was us, here, right? What? But if I'm here, but if I'm here right now, it must be he needs me. So he I'm allowed. He doesn't need. So he allowed there to be a part of quote unquote himself where he it ki'ilu, he needs us. Ain melech am. But in a higher right, aspect, so he doesn't need us. In the in the lower aspect, in the lower aspect, in the ultimate aspect, what's, he doesn't what's need the difference? us. What's the difference? What's the difference in the lower aspect and the higher aspect if something's needed, it's needed, right? Meaning if I need to go right now to the store to buy something that I only need, if I need to pack a box, so today I'm going to go buy tape, but I don't really need the tape, I just need I just need it to send the box away. But ultimately when you get the package that I sent you, that tape was pretty much irrelevant, right? If I would have had it in my house, if I would have bought it, borrowed it from a friend it would have been the same package right I didn't, but I didn't need it I needed it if you could send the box without the tape you want the tape I want the tape I think it'll make the box a little bit stronger I don't need the tape so it's a desire it's I want the tape so Kodesh Baruch Hu, for however there's certain things we cannot answer but he doesn't need us he wants us and therefore within that want within that rotson Ki'ilu, Ki'ilu, he needs us. Because within the world, it's getting a little bit deeper than we want to get right now, but, but Naftali likes to go just straight for the core, I see. In that which he wants, if you're living within the world that he wants, then in a certain way, he needs us. He needs us to keep that want going. But I'll go upon him, he created a world that He's never angry. There's no such thing. It's not like a, a father who's human who gets angry at his kids sometimes because we have gaiva and we have things that we want to do. God? He, there's such a thing? There's no such thing. He gets angry and he's actually angry. Such a thing. Everything is tov. So you're saying like, so like need is a, is a part of creation, you're saying? What do you mean? Want. God's, God, no, right. God Creations. wants. That's is, the creation. But creation the fact that he needs us is, is creation. Meaning, the fact that he needs something is a creation. Because, in essence, he doesn't need it. So he created this concept of needs, and we're that need. We're yeah, all of the that he. But it's again, it's it's first. It's a want. There's no the needs not first. It's he wants kilo. He wants a nation. Therefore, he needs there to be a world. For there to be, the reality of his wants. That's very deep. Well, you started. All right, <laughs> <laughs> Uncle him. So we want to be able to see that the that the world is 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 all good. We want to be able to see the world with God's eyes. That's called Geula. That's the redemptive type of life. When we don't see the Tov, that's called Gullus. Cham, you read so nicely. Can you continue? I feel like a teacher yeah, in sure. school. This is like some <laughs> weird. Well, I just, thing. yeah. I mean, 
I, I imagine that it's going mean, to be the whole book. It's definitely the end of the chapter, but just how he's saying, you know, always seeing the temple beneath the ruins, I mean, actively seeking the positive aspect. So I mean, it's there. It's there. It's just, like you're saying, the perspective of if, if you're willing to open your eyes to find it, then, then you have it. Then you, then you see it. But you have to first have the, the bias or the positivity in order to access it. Correct. The Tove is, he only creates Tove. He only creates Tov. Any Ra we see is from our understanding. Some things are so logically Ra. This is what the, what the Nazis did is Ra. It is Rishas. They killed. And it's true. But there still could be... You have to know how to say it without hurting people. We're not going through it, but there was a purpose for it. We'll call it a purpose. There's a purpose for it. Okay, let's carry, let's carry on. Cultivating this consciousness was his way of tending God's garden while helping each other become better, holier, and happier gardeners ourselves. Quite simply, this positivity bias, which is the key to unlocking God's secret garden, became a cornerstone of the Rebbe's teachings over the next four decades, expressing itself in myriad ways, especially as he continued to elaborate on Basilagani year after year. I love this. Um, this is the key to unlocking God's secret garden. The whole world is Be'emes, one million percent Hashem's garden. But most people see it as a destructive wasteland or just some place. It's a secret garden because only those who are seeking the positivity, seeking God, seeking Tov, seeking the temple beneath the ruins will be Zohar to see that garden. They all see him so he says it he says it later but just I, I loved it. this like really I loved how he says holier and happier gardeners ourselves I mean, it's his garden but, but we're the gardeners we're, we do the if we do the pruning and if we do the, the cultivating then we're in then we get the garden he ki- then, ilu needs then, us he ki- ilu needs yeah. us it's up to us it's, it's within our hands but don't forget he makes it rain there's only so much we could do at the end of the day he, he makes he it he can't rain. garden his own but he can't garden his own garden? He can. But he wants there to be gardeners. And once he wants there to say, be gardeners... But let's say you own a, a garden and you hire a bunch of people to come and maintain the garden. garden. And then they do a very... And then they decide like a few, a few days just to not show up. So you as your the owner of the garden, you're not going to let your garden just rot. You'll hire new people or do it yourself. If God, if we, if God sees us ruining his garden... Why does he just let it rot away? Who's the, where is it rotting away? The destructive wasteland that, pe- that, that people see. That's what they see. That's not the Emmis. He doesn't see that as a, like that. That's how we see it. Because when we leave the garden, we think that it's being destroyed. And, and exactly what you're saying. He doesn't let it be destroyed. He's, he keeps it going. Because really, Bemis, he just makes it look like we're gardening. Right. He's really always doing right. it. But he allows us to perceive... That we're doing it. Right. And therefore, that's our Bechira. What, how do you perceive life? It's your choice. He gives it to us. Okay, Zach, you're on, buddy. Uh-huh. Right, what a wonderful world. Oh. <laughs> what a wonderful world. In a well known address delivered 22 years later on 10 Shabbat, the Rebbe again expounded on Basi Lagani, addressing the potential cognitive dissonance one may experience when comparing the contention of this teaching 
that the world is God's garden to to the world they actually live in. The Rebbe explained. Right. Cognitive dissonance dissonance is like the you're saying something and you're seeing something totally different. So it's very nice. You can say all these fancy things, but Lamaisa, I don't see that. So that becomes very difficult for a person. What's the gap between, what would you say, what would you call the gap in between somebody telling you something, but you're not seeing it? God says, God came down and said, the world is good. And you say, I don't see that. What's that gap called? God says it's good, and I see I don't see it's good. So there's a big gap, right? There's a big gap between God saying it's good up here, and my thumb down here saying it's not good. What's that gap called? I mean, how do I close the gap? Klippa. What? Klippa. Klippa. It's called the Muna. It's called the Muna. Because God says it's good, it must be good. I don't see it good. So I now need to believe that it is. That's what closes the gap. I'm not telling he's, he's he's winding up, I see. You're winding up for something. <laughs> Nothing yet? Okay, Zach, let's go. This is what the Rebbe right, said. The, the Rebbe explained, when we look about with physical eyes, we only perceive the physical aspects in all that we see and we naturally wonder, what is happening within the world? The situation is steadily deteriorating from one generation to the next and even from one year to the next goodness does not prevail conditions are not improving holy and spiritual values do not dominate such thoughts easily lead to the conclusion that this world is but a jungle dominated by selfish beasts and that it certainly does not even remotely resemble a garden that yields delectable fruit such thoughts also lead to dejection and despair. How can we hope to affect and change the world for the better if the situation is consistently dege- degenerating? This is true, no? Look yeah, at this. Discour- it could be discouraging. It, 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 it is discouraging. Like- and the world, in, in certain eyes, is very discouraging. You see what's going on. There's a lot of good, but there's. it seems like the overwhelming majority is not good. And people are getting more messed up. And there's... You know, all you hear is more divorces and more kids off the derech and more just really messed up situations. That's what we hear. It's spiraling out of control. That's what it sounds like. So keep reading. The the shape of our thoughts directly impacts the color of our emotions, the tone of our speech, and even the efficiency of our act. Efficacy. Efficacy. Thank you certain thoughts are more likely to lead us down dark and destructive pathways while other thoughts have the power to inspire and strengthen us in pursuit of our highest purpose. So this is very important. I speak about this all the time in the Chaburas. That our thoughts, the way we think, which is our choice, is going to, the thoughts in the brain affect the heart, the speech, everything below it. The way, if I think positive, my eyes will see positive, my mouth will speak positive, and my heart will feel positive. It's all dependent on the king, which is my mind. And you could choose the way you see it. You might need to learn some tricks, you might need to learn some new perspectives, you might need to be introduced to another way of thinking, and that's what we're going to learn in this book, we're going to be introduced to a whole new way of thinking, and then we can choose 
to believe that that's the proper way. Even if we don't necessarily see it with our eyes, we can use our mind to believe it to be true, which will ultimately change the way we see, the way we speak, and the way we emote. And the more that you think, the more that you see, the more that you speak, the more that you feel, the more that you speak, the more that you see, it becomes a process of spiraling upwards and you'll, you'll be, you'll, you're going to live in a Kodesh Baruch Hu's garden in a way that you never believed possible. Because right now my eyes see Ra, bad, destruction, ugly, just anger, blaming. That's what I see. No way that this can ever change. There's no way. But it can. And it starts in the mind. And it's, it's called believing in the positivity bias. Because it ultimately means believing in Hashem's goodness. Alright, Zach. Therefore, the Rebbe continues. That's beautiful. Uh, therefore, we must know that the world is a garden. Exclamation point, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> therefore, we must know that the world is a garden. Yeah. Not just a utilitarian field that yields grain, which is necessary in order to subsist, but a luxuriant garden that yields precious fruits that provide color, aroma, flavor, beauty, and pleasure. Moreover, this world is not just anyone's garden. It is God's garden. As the verse states, I have come to my garden. Its goodness is therefore measured according to his infinite terms. So Bossi Lagani is that this world is a garden, which means... It's, so, it's not just a place, like he says, of grain so we can eat and live. Go walk through a garden. Smell, look, feel. Just sit and just be. Relax. Chill. And not just a beautiful garden, but a Kurdish boy who sits down next to you on the bench and says, you see my garden? You see it? Isn't it beautiful? Doesn't it smell nice? And you're like, yeah. Yeah. So it's two things. It's a beautiful garden. There's so much more in this world for us to perceive. We only use, we, we, we use our very narrow senses of this world. Like our basic senses, for, for most people, not, not everybody, the basic sense is, did you make money? Did you not make money? Like that's it. That's, you made money? Oh, the world smells beautiful. Did you make money? Ah, oh, it tastes beautiful. Did you make money? Ah, oh, it looks beautiful. And if you didn't make money, it smells, it tastes, it looks bad. That's, that's like the, the range of their garden. They're pushing missing the entire garden. Nothing to do with that. Go look at a tree. Go look at a child smiling. Go smell a fruit before you eat it. Naftali, what would Rabbi Victor Miller say, you know? Yeah. And it's a Kodesh Baruch's garden. Okay. It's almost your turn, Naftali. Zach, keep going for another little bit. So with this perspective, we are able to view the world differently. We begin to notice things that we may have missed upon first glance. When we realize that it is our responsibility to constantly search for God and for the good, we endeavor to look around us and perceive that, that which is beneath the shell, the fruit that is under the peel. Furthermore, despite all evidence to the contrary, we are confident that we will successfully uncover the garden that is latent in creation. Because the Torah tells us that it is indeed there waiting to be discovered. 
Knowing that a precious treasure awaits discovery, we remain focused on our task and do not allow ourselves to be sidetracked by other endeavors. We must know that we inhabit a wonderful world and through contemplating the above, we may as surely traverse through life secure in the knowledge that we will find the fruits of God's garden. If you have a fruit, I mean, you have an orange in front of you, you've got this thick peel. You have some, uh, you know, some, some alien coming down or some little kid who never had to sow an orange. And you tell them, eat the fruit, it's beautiful. And they're touching the, they're touching the peel. They're like, I, I should bite into this. They take a bite. They're like, what is this? You can't, you can't eat this thing. But obviously, you know, you have to peel it off. I know 1 million percent that there's fruit under there. The kid doesn't know that. He says, I don't believe it. Cause how, how would he know? It looks like a baseball. It tastes like an orange baseball. But you know, you've seen the fruit. You know that what's underneath. So what the Rebbe is getting us, what he's telling us, and what we have to believe, and it's totally in our belief, is that, that this whole world is one big orange. It's one big garden. You have to believe that there is, that you see the shell. But you have to believe that there's a fruit underneath the shell. That, to- that looks totally different. Than the, than, than the klipa. The fruit, you could bite into it. It's juicy. We have to believe that the situations in life, whether prati, s- specific situations, or kloli, general situations, even though they may look like a klipa, a shell that you cannot eat and chew, the emis under every single situation without any exception there is a tov beneath the surface what that tov is is not always known but there is tov and therefore we seek it believe it seek it and then you'll find it seek and you shall find did you finish that paragraph yeah that's the end of the paragraph alright Naftali let's go you could sing it if you want. Okay. You could sing the paragraph. Did, did you ever peel an orange or any fruit and it was rotten and not good? Oh, boy. Here we go. Here we go. No, I never did. Sometimes you peel, sometimes you peel an orange and it's nasty. Is the, the peel is the peel's perfect? Or does the peel have some... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe if you're a pro at, you know, picking them out. I don't know, but... I don't I think don't we know. could... Saying, I've had... I've, Yesterday I cut up a watermelon. I'm pretty good at picking fruit. Yesterday I cut up a watermelon, like one of those massive ones, and I cut it up and it was rotten inside. And I was, I like, oh, that's interesting. The, the shell literally felt and looked pretty good. So was there any one tiny piece that was good? Any piece? You don't know. You didn't try. You threw it away. No, I did. I did. I did. But there were some pieces that, oh. were, that were okay. So fine. So uh, who said that the whole fruit has to be good? Maybe it was only for that one little worth. piece. It wasn't worth cutting it off. <laughs> that's your that's your perspective. What happens if a person is dying of hunger, and he, he would take any little piece? So for you, who was expecting the whole thing to be perfect, you're right; it wasn't kadai. But for a person who's just looking for any tov, it would be kadai. But you have to really break your expectations. It's not posh. That's, that's called the Messias Nefesh. Because everybody who opens up a fruit expects 100% fruit. And if you see a little bit of ra, rotting, throw the whole thing away. Because we expect it to be perfect. But is that the proper approach to life? We've become spoiled. We've become spoiled. Not the fruits. We're posh spoiled. The way we think.
<laughs> do we and do we appreciate when we open up the fruit and it's mamish whole? Or no, we just that's how life is. We just take it for granted. If we would be makir tov that that fruit is beautiful on the inside because it could have been spoiled, we would taste it so much sweeter. And even if we didn't have that every single time, we would learn to appreciate even the little bit. All right, Natalie, you're up. All right. Um, okay. Easy for you to say. Regardless of how well-intentioned they are, such statements often leave one feeling as if the person saying them must never have experienced true suffering. However, let's recall that the Rebbe lived through waves of pogroms, the typhus epidemic, the refugee crisis, the killing fields of World War One, the Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of communism, the forced exile of his father, who ended up passing away while in exile, World War Two, and childlessness. Additionally, as a Rebbe, I feel like we read this before in the intro. He, he mentioned, he did mention this concept. The Rebbe said that he had to work on positively bias. Yeah. Right. Additionally, as a Rebbe, as a Rebbe, is a Rebbe or Rebbe? You're cool. Additionally, as a Rebbe, and even before, as we will see, his life was dedicated to absorbing and carrying the pain of hundreds of thousands of individuals who came to him for healing, advice, blessing, support, love, acceptance, help, and even a reason to live. Similarly, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, who first introduced the idea that the world as we know it is yet garden. As we know, it is yet God's garden. Also lived a life of unimaginable pain and suffering, both personal and historical. After all, Rabbi Yitzchak was imprisoned, tortured, exiled, and sentenced to death by the Soviets, survived the carpet bombing of Warsaw as, at the beginning of World War II, suffered from multiple sclerosis, lost a daughter in the Treblinka death camp, witnessed the members of his movement drastically dwindle due to communism and Holocaust, and saw the widespread assimilation of American Jews upon his arrival. In the Rebbe's own words, all of the above are the views of a man who has seen affliction, who underwent unspeakable suffering both before and after arriving on the welcoming shores of America. And yet, as the Rebbe pointed out in 1972, he was still able to see God's garden beneath all of man's destruction and des- desecration. The Rebbe's had lived through the violent paroxysms. I don't know. I don't, I don't know either. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. It seems violent. Paroxysms of a world gone mad and witnessed up close the most civilized of nations as it was transformed almost overnight into the cruelest of killing machines. Suffering alongside millions of the brethren, they looked unbroken hardly as European Jewry was destroyed, all while a developed and enlightened world stood silently by and wondered what to do about the Jewish question. These men had every right to be cynical about the world and the human condition and lose faith in the progress of, of history and humanity. And yet, despite all they've been through, both Rebbe's steadfastly maintained this fundamental teaching throughout the period of their leadership. The world is inherently good, intentionally crafted, and not only that, but beautiful too. Reality itself is a veritable work of sacred art, both in their own way, committed to every fiber of their beings, to healing the broken spirit of a battered people, and helping rebuild and renew their faith in God, his world and creations, one day at a time, and one good deed at a time. Time and again, no matter what they faced in life, they stated loud and clear, this world is a garden, its upkeep has been left in our care. No matter how little the past is with our collective monstrosities and personal mistakes, we are each, in essence, eminently capable of revealing the holy sparks of light that, is, that lie scattered beneath the surface of a shattered world. Toward this end, we must make sure, we must each make sure to tune our perception to never lose sight of life's pristine beauty, nor forget whose hand fashioned its design. This is our redemptive work as faithful gardeners, for which the Rebbe had never stopped preparing us. To always see good in the world, to always see God in the world, and to tend to his garden. This, it's fundamental spiritual this is the way you tend the garden. This is it. But the perspective, that is tending his garden, because it's our choice. I don't see a garden. I don't see a garden. 
because I see the world in a, in, 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 a, in, a, in a detrimental, negative way. Therefore, in my life, there's no garden. I destroyed God's garden. He gave me that ability. But he gave me the ability to also see the world as his garden. And then that itself is tending his garden. That's what he's given us. It's, it's, it's just words until you do it. But once you tap into it, it's, it's transformational. You don't see the world the same way. You don't see a piece of bread the same way. It's just different. The sun becomes brighter. The food becomes tastier. We're, as long as we don't buy into this with belief, everything is man-made. Literally. Everything is man-made. But the second you believe in this and everything becomes God's garden, everything from A to Z becomes God-made. There's no bigger change in the world than that. Okay, take us home, Naftali. This fundamental spiritual mission statement, full of holy chutzpah and hope, came to the forefront of Jewish consciousness when it was most needed, rising like a phoenix from the smoldering ashes of hatred, fear, and genocide to inspire an army of like-minded illuminators. This was the Rebbe's way to banish darkness through light. I would tend to say that the Rebbe and many other tzaddikim, they became so big because they had to go through the darkness. And a Kaddish Baruch puts sometimes people in times of life in general or in certain personal situations through this darkness in order that he's giving them an opportunity to break through and see God's garden in, in, in the strongest of ways. Because people who just coast through life, why do they have to try to find God's garden? What are they looking for? They, they, they love man's garden. This is beautiful. My garden outside my house is beautiful as, as the way it is. I'm happy. I'm making money. I have a family. Things are good. Okay, they're not 100%, but they're okay. But a Kurdish Baruch wants much more. He wants us to see the world as his garden, and he forces us sometimes into that situation. Are we willing? Are we willing to believe in the inherent goodness in the world, even if our eyes and our mind and our heart are saying it's not true? Can we break through with a belief that's higher than anything you can imagine? That's what the Rebbe did. That's what he's teaching us. And that's what Amir Tashem, we, we will continue to work on. It doesn't happen in a second. Sometimes it happens in a moment. Right? Sometimes it's a, an explosion. What was the Gemara in uh, Tainus? Um, who was that? Um, he, with the Zona, and then he started crying, and then he put his head between his knees and he died. I forgot his name right now. Oh, yes. Richard Dordaya. What was his name? Ben Dordaya. I forgot his first name. I forgot now. Revelisha Ben Dorda. Is it Alicia? Alicia Ben Dorda? I don't remember. I forgot it now. So that was a moment. Boom. Everything transformed. Then he died. Because that was it. But for most of us normal people, it's going to be a process of change, which is a beautiful process. Sometimes painful, sometimes hard. It takes a Muna. Right. It takes some serious nefesh. But, but you can mamish change. The, I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. The change from darkness to light. Okay. Metashem. Wow. I have to go. I have to go, but I just want. I was just going to say one thing that I said. I wrote at the end. I just wrote just to myself. I said that summing up. I said it's Hashem's garden, and our job is to prune and tend and cut away the weeds and bring out the inherent beauty that's there. And that we're the gardeners, and all we're trying to do 
is just just cut away what's covering that, and then it's it's there without. Right. Right. It's just things covering it, and then all you have to do is access it by cutting away what's what. And our brain is no good. Right. So that's a big physic for me. Right. Because the the baseline is good. Right. It's all there. We should resort to find those weeds, pull them away, figure it out, and just. And Davin, we can Davin to Kaddish Boga. Help me, Kaddish Boga. I believe in what the Rebbe is saying. I believe all that Tzaddikim are saying. But for some reason, I can't get it. Help me. Help me. And sometimes he'll, he'll just send something to your head. And sometimes he'll send you a Nisayun that you need to work on. But through that Nisayun, you'll be able to see the light. So once you ask him, he will help you. Just be on the lookout because you don't know how he's going to help you. He doesn't just drop. You don't just win the lottery. Sometimes he, he makes you work for it. But if you want it, he's ready to give it to you. All right, we should be zoch. It's a shame. Okay. okay. We'll continue next week, Mitzvah Shem. Have a great night. You too. Slava, slava. Amen, amen.